makes you such a threat. We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Betty Wastello, Chante Waste and Apechi Zapiello, Le Unki Piki He Wastello. Greetings and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with a good heart and good feelings. It's good for all of us to be here. Since 1992, this is First Forces Radio and Teokus and Ghost Horse sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Sopus and the lands of the Muncie speaking Lenape. This is an all native hosted, all native produced First Forces Radio, and Liz Hill is a producer of First Forces Radio. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. Our guest today, Deborah Utasio Kroll, is an Indigenous Affairs reporter at the Arizona Republic. She's a citizen of the Halon Salinan tribe of California. Deborah's current coverage area, which is supported by the Katina Foundation and the Water Funder Initiative, is the intersection of climate, culture, and commerce. Deborah has more than two decades of expertise in reporting on Native issues and publications, large and small, with an emphasis on environmental and science issues, and has been a contributor to two books on Native traditions. And we're discussing her recent investigative report in the Arizona Republic, quote, Arizona loses more of its Colorado River water allocation on a new drought plan. And with that, thanks for joining us on First Voices Radio, Deborah. We're looking and wondering about the drought that's happening, of course, in Arizona, but also other states. And could you take us through sort of the sequence of why it got to this place? And, of course, we're talking about the Colorado River. That means so much, not only to Native peoples, to the land, to the animals, to the life around it, but to other peoples as well. So, but I'd like to welcome you first to First Voices Radio. Deborah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on again. It's always a, a great honor to be on with you. So can you take us through the sequence of what happened to the Colorado River and what led up to this, this article that you're writing? Because it's been a long time coming, as we know, as Native people, because of how we live as citizens of the United States. Could you take us through that? Well, it depends on how far back you want to go. I'm I'm assuming that we'll, we'll start at the beginning of time when Native peoples along the Colorado River made use of a, the 
the water in different ways, mainly through agriculture. We know that that the ancestors of the Pueblos are, are longtime agriculturalists, as are the Akamel Otham or the river people and their cousins, the, the Donna Otham or the desert people, once lived along the river. They were, they were great agriculturalists, and they also used water to ensure that, that all living things were able to survive and thrive, whether they were fish, whether they were four-legged, whether they were birds, um, whether they were plants and, and, and trees and bushes. The, the, the original peoples stewarded their waters so where everything, everything had a, a way to survive and to thrive. Then when the settlers came, they, they don't look at water the same way that Native peoples look at water. We see water and, and we know that's the source of all life. And we don't, we don't just use it and exploit it. You, you know, we also, we also honor it for what it can give to, to all of us. The settlers came and they saw water and all they saw was a way to become rich or a way to, to you know, grow, grow crops that would make them rich or to water their livestock, you know. And so that's where the conflict started. We see that back in the, in the late 19th century, what's now called the Gila River Indian Community, which would be the Akamel Otham, the Ankh Akamel Otham, or Salt River people, and their, their friends and neighbors, the Peeposh, or people who lived towards the water, were all dependent on, on a tributary of the Colorado River, the Gila River. And settlers up, upstream decided that they didn't need a free-flowing river, so they started damming it. And that, that took those very, very prosperous Native peoples who had once supplied the army with, with a lot of their wheat and a lot of their cattle and a lot of their other foodstuffs, which made them prosperous, were plunged into dire poverty. And as you saw in, in some of the, the stories that the people were so hungry, they were boiling immature wheat berries just to get enough to eat to survive and there were very dire times for these people other peoples along the river experienced you know something similar to where non-indian settlers were taking most of the water and not leaving them much there were a few along the, the the lower colorado river who were still able to make use of their water like colorado river indian tribes the mojave and chemoeve Later on, Navajo and Hopi peoples who joined them, the Quetzal, the Cocopa, and down in Mexico, their relatives, the 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 Cucupa, the the Kumiai, you know, they were they were still able to make use of the water because it was still free flowing. Now let's go to 1903 when when the Supreme Court issues a decision that we know is the Winters Doctrine. And that Winters Doctrine says that tribes are guaranteed enough water to fulfill the purposes of their reservation. At that time, we know that the United States wanted all the Native peoples, whether or not they were agriculturalists or not, to become farmers. And that meant they had to have water for farms and water for livestock. Um, 
the, the Colorado River Indian tribes had already been allocated a large amount of water, the, the Quetzon people and the Kokopa people, and farther up, the, the Mojave relatives of the Colorado River Indian tribes of Fort Mojave, and across the river in California, the Chemehuevi, had, had, they had all gotten some water. In 1922, when, when the states, there's seven basin states, that would be California, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah. They all got together and met up to divvy up the waters of the Colorado amongst themselves. And tribes were, tribes were never at the table. Tribes were left out of the discussions. There's only one sentence in that compact, which was issued in 1922, that even mentions tribes saying, oh, well, the tribes' rights are not abridged. And they, they just said that the, the, four, the four states above um, what's now Lake Powell get seven and a half million acre feet. The three states below the, what's now Lake Powell get seven and a half million acre feet. And everybody, everybody was happy with that for a while. And then there arose a lot of, of angst and discussions over the years about California's taking most of the water and everybody else's is losing water. And so in 1963, we have another Supreme Court decision uh, called Arizona v. California. Now, that decision actually set in stone. It codified the, the water rights for the, the lower Colorado River tribes. You know, again, Fort Mojave, Chemehueve, Colorado River Indian tribes, Quetzal, and Cocopa. So now their, their rights are set in stone. In the meantime, you come over, and Gila River had been trying to adjudicate its rights. It took them almost 70 years, but they finally got a settlement in 2004. And part of their allocation is Colorado River water. So you're, about half the tribes in Arizona have now settled their, their what they call their water rights. That means they have, at least on a piece of paper, rights to a certain amount of water, whether it's from the Colorado, from the Gila, from the Salt River, from groundwater, um, down south, the Santa Cruz River. They, half of them have at least some rights. We call that paper water. However, Congress had not until very, you know, Congress has kind of sort of lagged behind in allocating the, the water, the, the money resources to tribes to actually make use of that water to develop their water systems, to dig wells, to get canals, to, to get water treatment facilities and actually get water into people's homes. They call that wet water. That's the water when you turn your tap on, that's what comes out. So very, very recently... For instance, White Mountain Apache Tribe finally got the money to start developing its water to where people in, in those communities will actually be able to turn on a tap and have clean, fresh water coming out. Some of the other tribes have been working on this for a while. You know, we know Navajo Nation, so many of their people don't have access to tap water. They have to haul their water. And 
the Indian Health Service, which is one of the agencies responsible for getting him that water, has been at least $400 million behind on delivering that water for decades. So they're getting some money here and there. But there's also a 40-some-year-long court case between Navajo, Hopi, some of the other tribes of what they call the Little Colorado River, which feeds into the Big Colorado River. And there's some anywhere from six to 9,000 people involved in that. So Navajo and Hopi's water rights in Arizona have been, have been tied up in this for years and years. Right now, we're in the, in the position where, as my elders put it, and as many elders in Southwestern tribes put it, because as you know, I am from California, we are in one of our periodic times of drought. Our elders knew about these periods of drought. They knew what to do when there wasn't enough water. They would switch to different forms of food. They would cut back on, on things that they would use water for to make sure that every, every living thing in their, in their lands had some access to some water and that people could still eat. So we are, we are in year 23 of a long-term drought in the Southwest. And elders tell us that these droughts can last for as long as 100 years. In the meantime, this guaranteed water that's supposed to be coming down the Colorado for the use of these seven states and 30 tribes, by the way, which also have some sort of connection to the river, that water is drying up fast. We're no longer getting seven and a half million acre feet flowing past past Lake Powell every year. It's it's at least 20, 30% down. We see the two major reservoirs are down to 25% of their capacity. If they get, I believe at Lake Mead, um, we, were, we were checking, we think we're about 170 feet from the point they call Deadpool, where no water will flow out of that dam at all, which means that the tribes south of Lake Mead will be dry, as will California, which gets four, four million acre feet, including one district in the Imperial Valley, which gets 3.1 million acre feet for one district. In 2019, for the first time, the Bureau of Reclamation turned to tribes and said, we need your help in dealing with this drought. And they came up with what they called the drought contingency plan. And a lot of that was due to the fact that in 2007, they developed interim guidelines and the tribes were left out again. So this time they got the tribes involved. The tribes have all agreed to, to do their part to help mitigate the drought. Segway till to two weeks ago, um, Bureau of Reclamation had issued a decree in June to all the states and all the tribes saying that in order to, to preserve the two lakes so everybody at least gets some water, you guys need to come up with a way to cut back another two to four million acre feet of, of water use. So Colorado River Indian tribes and Gila River Indian community have been voluntarily not taking part of their allocation. They've been leaving it in Lake Mead to keep the levels up to where everybody got some, you know, got some water. Um, they, 
they called that the 500 plus plan because the three states, Arizona, California, and Nevada, had all agreed to come up with a way to conserve 500,000 acre feet each year for two years. And 179,000 of those acre feet came from two tribes. So reclamation, let's, let's go back to two weeks ago. Reclamation had said 37 entities, seven, you know, 30 tribes and seven states come up with a plan by August 15th. That deadline came and went. Everybody is very frustrated. August 16th comes along. Everybody thinks that Bureau of Reclamation is going to say, if you guys can't come to a decision, we'll come to a decision. Instead, what Bureau of Reclamation did was, we already have these agreed upon cuts that that you agreed to in 2019. And this is all we're going to cut for now, which is Arizona's going to lose 21% of its, its Colorado River water. Nevada lost 7%. Mexico lost a certain percentage. California lost none. And now there's a lot of gnashing of teeth out there and clutching of pearls between these these state water departments. And, and the tribes are feeling, you know, once again, it's like we've done our part and all that's happened is nothing's really happened. In fact, Gila River Indian Community is losing part of its water because it had agreed in 2004 to take part of its water rights in agricultural water, which was subject to, to cuts. So that later that day, Gila River Indian Community issued a statement saying we are pulling out of the 500 plus plan. It said we've, we've done our part and nobody else has, has, you know, none of the other parties have, have actually done anything but talk and the talks aren't going anywhere says we need to look out for ourselves so we're going to take our extra water and and recharge our aquifers the way that we had been before this is where we're at is that bureau of reclamation has said has been trying to get everybody back to the table to say we need to do this guys we need we need to come up with a way to make this more equitable for everybody um and we're going to have to see where it goes from here in the meantime, we still have people in Navajo and Hopi having to haul their water. We still have little Wallapai Nation waiting for its 5,000 acre feet to come up from the Colorado River that they have been asking for for 10 years. We still have um, the Auction Indian community, which is getting the water it's supposed to be getting, but because the farms surrounding their, their tribal lands were cut of their water. They're pumping more and more groundwater, which is very salty groundwater, and it gets mixed into the canal that, that delivers off Chin's water, and it's making that water saltier and, and has more solids in it. Now, Chin is facing very, very expensive water system repairs because it was designed for the, the quality of water it was promised. Toskayaki only gets 500 acre feet a year. They, they would like to get a little bit more. We have a few other tribes that still haven't settled their water either. In the upper basin, it's even worse. I only covered the lower basin in this particular series of stories. For instance, the, the, the Paiute tribe, the Unta and Ore, the second largest reservation in the United States, second only to Navajo, 
has been chronically shorted of its water every year because people say, well, you're not using it, you're losing it. So they're just taking it. Um, Colorado River Indian Tribes is trying to get congressional authority to, to lease water that they voluntarily conserved to serve as another means of revenue. And by leasing, of course, that means they can they, they still own the water because they've been voluntarily conserving and they're seeing that water flowing down and other people are using it for free. There's so many different angles and perturbations in this. Um, but there is, there is some hope. And that is that, that tribes did get at least a seat at the table. They are, they are actively engaged and, and they are exerting their muscle in saying we're in this all together, but, but we expect all you other water users to bear the pain equally. So that's where we're at right now. When will there be water mandates as compared to voluntarily? Are the people really, besides the departments and the states and whatnot, are they really going to volunteer? And everybody wants water for their gardens. They want it for their farms. They want to water their lawns for the golf courses. So this is what I'm looking at. And all the time there's frustration brewing underneath. It seems like that's ripe for quote-unquote, water wars. I think you might be on to something because I talked to a, a water policy expert at the University of California at Irvine. Now, I've been talking with people at Arizona State. I've been talking with people at University of Arizona. I've been talking with people at the University of Colorado. I figured it was time for someone who represented the state with the largest water allocation. And he came up with some really interesting thoughts is that they might be close to actually feeling like they have to do something, but until they're actually to the point of turning on their tap and nothing comes out, that might be when they finally realize they have to do something because the people in the big cities in California have just now been told you can only water your lawn once a week. We have big Hollywood stars using using three times what they're supposed to be using. Uh, we had that one Kim Kardashian, her, her water, the amount of water that she is using that was over what she was told she could use would keep two to three families in water for a year just to keep her grounds green and lush. I see court cases coming up. I see tribes exerting their, their rights and coming forward and saying, we have done what we need to do. It's your turn to do something. Um, but I'm, I'm really kind of worried that it's going to take, it's going to take Lake Mead going, getting past the point where any water will flow past the dam for everybody to realize. However, however, on the other hand, we have the head of the Arizona Department of Water Resources who as recently as two years ago said, oh, there's no crisis, no crisis. This week, he's saying we're in a crisis. Some people are getting the message and some people aren't. There's going to be a lot of very harsh words inside of these boardrooms. All I can say is I'm watching to see what what happens next because there's the, all the old ideas have been floated around from cloud seeding to big giant pipelines take water from the Mississippi and the Great Lakes to desalination 
to drilling down and taking the brackish water and some of the aquifers underneath reservations and cleaning that up by desalination so people can use it. And in the meantime, the Navajo Hopi water settlement adjudication drags on. Deborah, you know, when I was thinking about the, the length of watching Navajo and other tribes haul water from distances, that's not, you know, a concern of those who can turn their tap on and, you know, because they paid for it in other municipalities and even the big farms. Okay, so if the water is below level that they can't even make power anymore, what are, what are people going to do without power? Are the, are the rivers like the Colorado River, the, the Gila River, are they at their original capacity before the dams were made? And maybe the earth is telling civilization something here? They're, they're, they're really not. The Colorado River has shrunk. Just like when we talked about, about tribes and fire a while back, you know, the, the earth is, is sick and the earth is trying to fix itself. But because it doesn't have that higher cognitive capacity that, that, that we humans have, and that's why we were put here by creator to be the stewards, to be the, the caretakers. You know, the earth's doing what it has to do. If it means it's cutting back on its water, it's cutting back on its rain, it's, it's causing fires, it's going to do what it needs to do. But it's up, up to us humans to figure out how to come up with a longer term solution. It's up to us humans, but look what we're doing with what we do know in a vague plan, so to speak, as you say. And we're talking with Deborah Utasio Crow, who's an investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic. We talk about the, the water allocation and the drought plan in Arizona, which is affecting actually the rest of the country. Because you think about it, uh, many of those crops, much of the food that we get from Arizona comes from that region of California, Arizona, Mexico, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, and they're under a drought. And actually a reminder of where water may be very scarce and that it may teach us, show us how to respect and honor water much more than we do. The water of life. And we'll be back with Deborah Utasio Crow talking about another shortage, that of sage, white sage of California. This is Teokas and Ghost Source. Thanks for joining us here on First Voices.
And that was Childish Gambino with Feels Like Summer. And welcome back to the second half of First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen Ghost Horse. You know that more than 100 native people and environmentalists gathered beneath a big tent in the meadow on an unusually chilly day in May to discuss climate issues and indigenous responses. Native people from California and Arizona, the Kumeyaay and the Kukupa, the Mesoamerican relatives of the Kumeyaay and the Kukupa peoples of Southern California and Southwestern Arizona, they share many traditions and frequently meet to discuss common topics. They came to talk not only about decreased water supplies, hotter weather, and cattle trampling delicate plants, but a potentially devastating threat to cultural practices and ecologies of ejedos, or traditional indigenous settlements in Baja California, the wholesale poaching of California white sage. California white sage has gained worldwide popularity thanks to counterculture, New Age practitioners and even Hollywood stars. Without popularity comes at a high price. It's been poached by the ton from tribal lands, public lands, and even some plots of privately owned land, decimating ecologies and native cultures in Southern California and Baja California. Indigenous peoples and environmentalists hope that a new documentary will raise awareness of the scale of the thefts and what people can do to reduce poaching while state and local law enforcement officials and land managers wage a frustrating battle against poaching rings. And before I forget, the new documentary is Saging the World. Joining us again is Deborah Atasio Crow of the Haloni Salinan tribe of California talking about the decimation of white sage that you can buy at your local organic food store. So let's yep. let's move on to the white sage that you were talking about because that seems to be another issue that no one is looking at. So would you talk about that white sage a little bit, Deb? Oh, sure. Um, you know, California white sage has long held great cultural and religious significance to a lot of our tribes in Southern California, in Baja, California. You know, it's used to, to pray with, it's used ceremonially, it's also used medicinally, it's also used to to clean out your house after you've been shut in for the winter. You know, there's all sorts of, of uses for the sage. However, the wellness community, aka the New Agers, have discovered sage. And there's this big smudging craze. You can see it on YouTube, you can see it on TV influencers are talking about smudging your house. These people have no real idea of the significance of sage. However, because people see that there's there's a way to to use or, or make money off sage, we have, we are experiencing a huge poaching problem, mostly on public lands and in in Baja California. Within Ejido lands, the Ejidos are the, are the traditional lands of the of the um, indigenous peoples in Mexico and Mesoamerica. They're getting hit really hard. The state and federal land in Southern California is getting hit really hard. Some tribal lands are getting hit, and even some people's private land. People are cutting the fence and going in there and denuding all the white sage and then taking it out and selling it the authorities are trying to combat the problem 
and they said it's like playing whack-a-mole. You know, one, one person gets prosecuted, the next one pops, pops up. A lot of the people who actually get prosecuted, though, are the low-level people who, who are getting paid just to go gather it. A lot of them are migrants. A lot of them are just desperate to make 30 bucks for a, for a bag of sage. And these are 55-gallon, I mean, or I should say 55 pounds worth of sage stuffed into a duffel bag, and they pay them 30 bucks. And then they turn around and make the bundles and sell them for as much as $10 for a little tiny bundle. And so it's, it's, it's devastating the, the culture, and it's also bad for the environment because the, the Latin name for California white sage is Salvia apiana or bee sage. So this sage is very important to bees. Our native pollinators who depend on, on the pretty white flowers for food. And then they lose. And then, of course, if you take all the sage down to the ground, you're losing ground cover, which means that other plants and animals have no place you know, you're, you're denuding habitat. It's it's just a huge, huge problem. So Native peoples have been bringing atten- trying to bring attention to this for years. The California Department of Fish and Wildlife and the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department have been working together to try to, to round up the, the big guys. I guess you could call it the White Sage Cartel. And the... Um, and there are a few legitimate farms that are actually growing it to sell. Although Native peoples would prefer that you don't buy it at all. They would prefer that you grow your own or to obtain it from someone who's growing it in their yard. But we know every, not everybody can grow sage. I know I've been trying to grow sage in my yard in Phoenix and I haven't had much success. So either I have to depend on the goodwill of some of my Southern California um, tribal brothers and sisters who will share some from their yard, or I, I have to buy some from um, one of the small companies. One of them is called Sage Winds, which does grow sage legitimately and organic, no less, for sale to people who can't grow their own. So basically, it's gotten so bad that. If you go to a farmer's market, a powwow, a, a bead store, or Ross, or Amazon, or Walmart, and you buy sage there, you have a 9 out of 10 chance that bundle of sage uh, was poached. So it's, it's become a problem, and there's a new documentary out called Saging the World, where they bring in elders from both Southern California and Baja California to explain the, you know, why it's important for people to, to, you, you know, learn learn to use sage appropriately, um, learn why why imitating native ceremonies is cultural appropriation, um, why it's important to really learn about what you're doing before you do it, and why it's important to be extremely careful and cautious. If you're going to use sage to make sure that you are using sage that has not been stolen. Now that that is very important too, and that's a you know paper trail as you say. This has happened before with other plants, 
mm-hmm. including land, right? With water now yes. and now with sage, it's it's disappearing. I ran into this when I was younger and watching it, this generation of, I, I think they call them hippies or new agers coming onto the reservation and other natives allowing this to happen. And there was no sage to pick when it came time for ceremony. But some natives got it within them to, to stop the people coming onto the reservation to to for the picking of sage. And then one year, two years, it bounced back. But they they were picking the wrong kind of sage. Um, they were picking the female sage and nothing, you know, repopulated itself. Look what we're doing to ourselves, to the land, with this wellness community. And it's it's a cut above and a lot of people cannot reach it because we can't afford to be there. And so they have this eliteness about them that they can go to other countries, come here to the United States and just take for their own pleasure, for their own uh, search for soul and spirit. And I don't blame them, but still that is, they need to be shown how to do this, like you say. And I really understand what you're saying. And I really feel the sage. This is ceremony time for a lot of Native people, especially in the summertime. But I want to say thank you to that. And is there any other thought process you could add to the sage and to the what we were talking about earlier about the water? I think that that with the sage, you know, because me being from Central California, we're a, maybe a little bit north of there of, of of its growing range. But of course, with climate change, it's going to keep coming north. You know, it's it's up to us as Native peoples throughout. Turtle Island to to continue to speak out to non non natives about about the proper use of of our plants, the proper use of water. That it's not they're not to be wasted, they're not to be squandered. That that you really need to to be very mindful and be humble and and to look to Creator. Um, for guidance on how you should be using these, these especially water, because with, without water, we have no life. So I think that would, it, it's always the best thing to approach this with prayer, approach it with humility, and never be afraid to speak out and, and explain why you feel the way that you do about, about these things and why and what is the proper way to go about using these life-giving substances and these and these plants that that are essential to our prayers. Well said. But I thank you, honor you for being here and bringing us this updated news on water because water will keep us updated. Um, but I want to thank you for honoring us here on First Voices Radio. Well, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure being with you. Thank you, Deb. See you next time. Hey, stop.
Songs of Connection by Matthew O'Neill. That's Worldwide 2022 by the Riverside, released by the Underwater Panther Coalition. Come 
And that was Quicksilver Messenger Service with What About Me? Asking the same questions, the same question over 50 years ago during your grandparents, your parents' time, and now you've just heard it. And the message is the same. Nothing has changed. Worried about the water, the food, the land, and it's all in the attitude that nothing's going to change because it's up to somebody else too. Quicksilver Messenger Service. All right, that about does it here on First Voices Radio. Thank you for joining us. Come well, go well, 
Give care to the earth. My name is Teokasing Ghost Horse.